0: Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to do a Kickstarter spotlight on Wanderer's Guide to Enchanted Emporiums by Eventier Games. We're going to take a look at the new Maps feature of D&D Beyond and talk about what it means for tabletop role-playing games. We're going to look at the Monstrous Compendium 4 for D&D Beyond and what that means for D&D. Today's main topic is going to be on adventure models and systems. What are the common adventure models that we can use when we're building the adventures for our games? What are a handful of the common models and how do they work? What are the Systems that work there. And we're going to cover more questions from the September 2023 Patreon QA, all today on the Lazy B- RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in tabletop role playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to a whole bunch of exclusive features like a dedicated Discord server, the monthly QA, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2. The City of Arches source book and a whole bunch of exclusive adventures, but most of all, they helped me put on shows like this. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your outstanding support. Even Tier Games has put out a, at least one, if not two, different books about shops. That you can drop into your game. It's a really interesting idea. Like you know, having a book that's just dedicated to different shops that you can drop into your game. They have a brand new one called Enchanted Emporium, The Wanderer's Guide to Enchanted Emporiums, available both in physical and PDF. This is done by J.A. Valer by by Even Tier Games. And one disclaimer, I wrote for this. I was I was I I, I have a one of my shops is in here. A very cool vendor. I don't wanna I don't wanna spoil it, but it's really neat. Kind of a like I, I'm always interested in like how do you fit a shop into the weirdest places in the world. Like when the characters are like high up in the mountains or like deep in a swamp that hasn't been touched by you know by intelligent folk and centuries and oh hey here's a guy selling potions why so i think like in my original one i had like a, the bone collector or the bone the, the bone merchant and the bone merchant was this undead merchant that was like cursed to sell stuff in the middle of old tombs and my new one is this ancient statue who trades goods you give him you give him gemstones he gives you goods and he speaks telepathically and looks out it. it's really cool anyway i was commissioned to do that for for games so i am not an unbiased reviewer of this kickstarter but i think it's i think it's really cool and you can get a free sample there's a free sample it is a one click you click it and you get the free sample right right off the bat here's that free sample a handful of pages 11 pages that shows you the quality of the work that they've got the kind of different what the different stuff see for the different shops and you can take a look and say are these the kinds of things that i want to be able to drop into my game then you can drop them into your game so looks really cool well 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 done you know it's going to work out well the reason why there's like a tear line here is there's more art more art coming on the way so ignore ignore the tears can see like here's an example of the tear where they have like a chimera that's breaking free from a market oh a chimera calamity when when you're in the market so really neat stuff i'm looking forward to seeing it and i think it could be a fun way to find if you're having trouble finding interesting places to buy and sell items this is a good this is a good a good way to do it so check out the wanderer's guide to enchanted emporiums on kickstarter you can find a link down in the show notes DD beyond this past week announced maps Maps is a, for all intents and purposes, a 2D virtual tabletop that's tied to D&D Beyond and you have to go to a specific url dndbeyond.com slash games that's linked in the show notes if you're having trouble finding it but you can also find it on their homepage they're calling it an alpha and that's probably about right it is extremely rudimentary has very very basic abilities you i can tell from the inside that their idea was hey let's just get this in front of people with the bare minimum stuff that we can put out there to get people to start to use it so it is missing tons of features and what i'm not going to do today is talk about all of the features that it's missing and all of the things it should have because it is very, very early. So I don't, that that isn't to me the interesting part of the conversation, but we'll, we'll talk about it here. We'll show it that you can basically pick one of your things. I created a, like a lost mind of Fandelver and you hit go and it pulls it from your campaigns. So you, you have your, your different campaigns in there and it loads a map. I set up a, a goblin ambush. I've got my, one of my characters that I, that I had in here. And you can go to your token browser. Very straightforward stuff. You have your hand tool, which lets you move around the map. You have your fog of war, which you can either like turn on, like cover all or reveal all, or let's say you want to cover it and then use a paintbrush. There we go. You use a paintbrush to just show the stuff that they can see. No polygon tool or anything like that yet. Obviously you would see stuff, but let's say you just want to get down to the tree lines, you know, pretty quick to to draw you know, to, to draw what, what people can see. Right. And that way you're not like showing in the woods and everything like that. Just barely enough. Like obviously it doesn't have any of the features that like Albert rodeo, has my favorite virtual tabletop albert rodeo has a million different polygon tools that you can use to shape and shift things in my shadow dark game i was just showing about how you can make a 30-foot circle attach it to a token and as that token is moving around you can the, they will be able to see what they can see in the map but this this does the trick right this one you know gives you a good idea pretty quickly you know, you're pretty quickly able to set it up and then you go to your token browser and you type in goblin and you get a goblin You go boop 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 And you can add three goblins, right? And you can move your goblins to different locations. And, oh, there's another, there's another goblin. You hit delete to get rid of them. Very, very simple. So, and that's it, right? It doesn't have hit point tracking. It doesn't have like stats from your character builder automatically applied to a token. It doesn't have all sorts of other things that you might go, oh, wouldn't it be really cool if they had X? It's just tokens on a map and you can upload a map or you can use one of their pre-built maps that they have for particular campaigns. So very cool you know, a neat, a neat, a neat start. And again, you know, a, a bare minimum product. If they, they call it alpha. I think that's the right term for it. I've, Teo Sabadea had a big, long video that he shot. I'll link to that in the show notes where he showed it in use. And he described it as being more than an alpha. I disagree because during his own demo, it was crashing regularly. He was having trouble with bugs. There's things like that. So it's definitely early. But it's tied directly in D&D Beyond. It's something that everybody has in D&D Beyond. So, you know, so th- so there it is. I expect it's going to get, I expect it's definitely going to get better. But then I like to sit back and say, well, what does this mean? Right? What do we, what do we think, what do we think about this? Teos actually brought up the idea that is this going to just make D&D Beyond? He was, he th- was channeling his internal Mike Shay, which is something you generally don't want to do, but he was doing it and he was channeling his internal Mike Shane like is this going to make DD beyond even more sticky and more monopolistic Monop- is that word Monop- we're going to create monopoly create more of a monopoly for dnd beyond than it already has is this and then i go back to like is this kind of thing d- dangerous to the ttrpg hobby whenever i talk about this stuff by the way i get emails from people and i get comments from people that are like i just wish you talk about stuff and it's like i get it but this is something that i think is important or i wouldn't talk about it is it dangerous for the TTRPG industry? And uh, for this one, I argued, I don't think so. I don't think it is. And the reason why I don't think it is, is because there's many alternatives, many existing alternatives to this kind of feature this kind of technology you can use something as simple as hour by rodeo something as complex as roll 20 or well integrated as roll 20 complex as foundry you can use fantasy grounds you can use shard there are many many different options for this kind these kinds of features so the idea that there are the idea that that they have a map application built into D beyond that isn't putting other VTTs at risk. The one VTT that might be a little bit at risk is above VTT, which sits on D&D Beyond itself. The, the, the real feature that above VTT has is that it sort of sits on top of your D&D Beyond build and, and uses maps and we have one of the people that that runs and operates above VTT in this life Flourish discord and they're not worried because it's all they it's not monetized anyway like it's not a business for them so they're not like oh we're going to get put out of business well they're not it's not a business now so you know now the interesting thing is it feels like they could have just bought above VTT or integrated above VTT embraced it like they did with Avre but there's probably a bit of like eh, it's just easier for us to build it on our own and they probably have been building this for a little while so I mean but it would have could have should have right they could have they could have incorporated it but they didn't and one thing is like they're facing like performance issues and stuff like that you're like all these performance issues are things that like albert rodeo went through already and albert rodeo 1.0 is is open source i think so like they probably could have capitalized on some other existing technologies to do some of this stuff but who am i i don't work there i'm not an engineer that sits in their thing i don't know how they came up with it and i'm sure that it'll get better right i'm sure the performance will get better i'm sure things will get more And by kind of integrating themselves maybe it's easier than it would be to try to Buy another tool or bring in another tool or anything like that. So, but I don't think that it kind of makes the TTRPG industry or even the 5e. If you think about it, I kind of have these different circles, right? There's the TTRPG industry overall, and that's pretty healthy. Anybody can make an RPG. You can make everything from like Professor Dungeon Master's Deathbringer system, which is a trifold single sheet of paper. To something as rich and as deep as like the Shadow Dark RPG or even like Old School Essentials or Dolman Wood, or these other big RPGs. Pe- there doesn't seem to be anything getting in the way of people putting out new RPGs and getting a decent audience to pick them up. We were remarking that there were three this year alone. There were three old school style RPGs, old school D&D style RPGs, all of which had more than 10,000 backers and made more than a million dollars. So not only can anybody really make an RPG, but even there there doesn't seem to be any limit to finding people if you can get them, if you can if you can if you can sell your idea, wizards is not in your way. Like what's happening with D&D is not in your way to writing a big RPG and getting it out in front of people because we've now seen three examples where people have been able to do so. Now granted that's sort of like Survivorship bias. We're picking the three big ones. How many failed that we didn't see? But what I would say is it's pretty clear that, like, what's going on with DD and Wizards of the Coast is not in the way of these other groups making these systems. So then you have 5e and what's going on with 5th edition. As I, I really look at 5th edition now as its own envelope of a subset of TTRPGs, a very, very big subset. And there's lots of things going on inside 5th edition and lots of different publishers publishing for 5th edition. You have Level Up Advanced 5e. You have Tales of the Valiant. You have uh, Cubicle 7's C7D20 and the stuff that they're putting out there. Uncharted Journeys by Cubicle 7, which is an excellent book. I, really, I previewed this book previously. Really, really cool book about how to, how to handle travel in lots of different locations. Great big thick book. Lots of ideas. Easy to parse. Easy to read. Really fun. It's got different roles that you can take on your journeys. I really like it. Now it's going on the, the bookshelf right next to my desk. So I will have it. Uncharted Journeys, that's called. What was my point? So lots of different groups are making things for 5th edition. And then, of course, the big one in the center of that, which dominates. Like, if you were going to do a Venn diagram, there would be this tiny sliver on the outside. And then this great big hole. And that's Dungeons & Dragons. 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. 5th edition d d 5th edition D&D is huge. And they're doing lots of things. They're putting out new books. But the books that they put out aren't getting in the way of other people putting out their books. So that's not really an issue. That doesn't there's no risks or danger really to other publishers except in one area and that's D&D Beyond. And that's because many players by my own calculations the, the the players and the DMs I surveyed about 50% of them are using D&D Beyond. And they can use it in home games, they can use it in remote games. So it's got a lot of value, but it only has material for from published by Wizards of the Coast or those publishers that Wizards of the Coast decides to publish. And I've talked about the potential risks of that, the things that makes me worried about do they open it up to other publishers? Lots of people want them to open up to other publishers, but I worry that that creates a system where you are competing against Wizards of the Coast. For example, like let's say this is a kind of an extreme, but let's say they wanted to put a banner ad up on wizards, wizards can put banner ad up, banner ads up for free, and then make everyone else compete on price to put their product up in that banner ad. They don't have to pay it; everyone else has to pay it. Stuff like that 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 worries me a little bit. Now it could just be another source. I was having this conversation with some friends of mine, and they said it could just be another source. Who cares? As long as it's not exclusive, that was their big issue. As long as it's not exclusive to publish there, it should be fine. Except. If it still becomes the dominant platform where people find goods, it doesn't matter if you're able to sell anywhere else because people aren't going to find it anywhere else, and they sort of eat the whole industry up because that's the only place you buy. That's kind of a different conversation. And now I'm speculating way far ahead into things that haven't even occurred yet, so that's not really the issue. The real issue is, does Maps draw in more of that? And I say no. This is a thing that helps them. It helps people who are on DDB on it gives them a tool. That's great. But there are many other tools that you can use and it's not hurting any of those. So like, I don't expect that Albert rodeo is going to see a a drop because maps is in there. People who like Albert are going to want to use Albert. Eventually this is going to probably get pretty good. We can hope that it gets pretty good, but I bet you development on it is slower than some of the smaller development activities because it's a big company. It's got big company problems. So, we could see how long it takes them to 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 build up the maps application to build up maps until it's really really solid and really good but i don't think it's going to eat into the industry that much actually i think the the one vtt is you ready here's like a bs prediction right you ready for like a bs expert prediction that's probably going to be false because experts generally suck at predictions i'll make it anyway <laughs> and i'm not, i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to hedge it but the vtt at greatest risk of getting eaten by this is the 3D VTT that they're developing. So they're developing this 3D VTT. The hype on it is really, really high. They're bringing in people to test it out. They showed it at the summit. Remember that summit, they talked all about the 3D VTT. They dragged everybody in to talk about the 3D VTT. They didn't even talk about the fact that they were doing this. How excited would people have been if this? And by the way, we also have a 2D VTT that's gonna be for, you know, built into DD Beyond for master tier subscribers and you get access to it. Probably people would have wanna seen it. Instead, like while we're all watching YouTube videos about the 3D VTT and hearing secondhand reports about what's going on, meanwhile, we're all trying this one. And I bet you, because this works on l- hopefully lower end hardware, can work on portable devices, tablets, and maybe even phones. And I don't really think, I, maybe just me. I could be so. I could totally be wrong. I respect that. I could totally be wrong. I really don't feel like people that GMs and players are really seeking a 3D VTT. I don't think that's like one of the limitations of the hobby. I think the real limitation is finding people to, to play and play regularly. Finding a good group of people to play regularly is the hardest problem of D&D. And like, I would be pouring millions into that. I would be working on building like an LFG system, like a, a good tool where people can go in and find people and you, I don't know if it's moderated or whatever, so that you can make sure that you're not getting jerks in your game and set it up. So it's, I want to be able to play D&D as easily as I can play Marvel Snap right? And, and I'm sure that's an impossibility, but look at Marvel snap and how fast it can put you together in a game and have a fun game where it really doesn't matter who the other person is on the other end. You're still having a good time. Figure out how to do that with D and D. I don't know how, I don't know if there's a good way, but that is a real problem of D and D that a 3d VTT. That's not a problem. I don't think like, I think a lot of millions of dollars are going to go into that. Many millions of dollars are going to go into that for a problem that nobody really has or really wants. You know who really wants it are the people who want to sell you flaming flamy cloaks for your minis at $2 a piece. That's that's the people that that's where it's trying to solve a problem. So, but then the maps are cool. Is it is it causing a problem for d and I don't think it's causing a problem for d and I don't think it's causing a problem for the TTRPG industry. I think it's cool. I'm obviously eager to see it go. In the same way the encounter builder is built in and now they have ways to do encounter builder, that's really good. But we'll 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 have to see we'll have to see what's we'll have to see where this goes, but very neat. And go give it a shot. Go try it out. See what you think. Try if you're running P- vanilla D and D stuff. I think it works great. If you're running things where you like, you're bringing character options from other groups, then it gets a little tricky. But if you're using D d Beyond anyway, and maybe you're using the Encounter Builder, it seems to make sense that you could use this too. The one feature I didn't I didn't show it. The one feature that it has. This is one thing that I think is really cool. Is it? And this is where integration comes in. My wife, we were talking about it, I was describing it to her and she said, how integrated is it? And I'm like, well, that depends on what integrated means to you. You know, what integration means lots of things, but it does have a combat log built right in here. So when you are in D&D Beyond, rolling dice on your character. So I have my, my character here. What's her name? Lola, Lola Johnny. We'll go to D&D Beyond. We will go to my characters. Go to Lola Johnny. She's in my Lost Mine of Fandover game right and we will go to her actions and she's going to roll an attack roll with her great axe well, she's gonna throw a javelin and she throws a javelin i roll my fancy dice i got a 13 and 18 to hit right and i go yay that's a hit i'm gonna roll damage it's a d6 plus three and i roll a five now when we go back to the map you can see that it popped up there there's the 18 to hit and there's the five damage so the game log is carried over in it, which means you can have your VTT map on one side, you can have your character sheet on the other, and you can watch the game log going up and down as you can see other people doing their roles. And I assume all of the shared game log stuff that exists inside the encounter builder, like hiding roles or not hiding roles, uh, that should also show up here. So that that's really the integration with d Otherwise, it's tokens on a map. You know, it seems to work really well. And you, if you you have a map link and an invite link that you can send to people. So that's how I feel about maps. Also this week... Wizards of the Coast did something else kind of interesting, another little experiment, which is they put out a series of creatures called the Monstrous Compendium 4, Eldraine. Eldraine creatures. Eldrain is apparently a Magic the Gathering game world. And they put together a set of 25 fae and fairy tale monster creatures inspired by the magic they're in a wild wilds of Eldraine setting with, with stat blocks that are usable in the DD Beyond tools like encounters and maps. Look, they're already they're already talking about the thing that they're doing maps. Now, the interesting thing about this is. This is the first time they've charged for it. So it's 6 bucks. If you wanted it it's 6 bucks. Now, I have a legacy account with D&D Beyond that gives me access to everything that they put out. So I have access to this. We'll we'll we'll, we'll look it up here and take a look. It's under Sources. Monsters Compendium for Eldrain Creatures. And it gives it's a good chunk of stuff right it's a lot of text it describes the Eldrain, describes the wilds talks about different groups and how they operate here and then but basically is a giant monsters compendium of different monsters of different challenge ratings here's the challenge ratings: cr one half from the fairy burrower up to the beanstalk worm cr 18. look at that guy that's pretty cool big big fairy tale big fairy tale monster cr 18. i didn't really dig into the stat blocks that much there was a couple things that i looked at and i was like oh that's kind of that's kind of interesting. And then, but the real interesting thing was the idea of charging six bucks for it. Now, I'm not going to get Ben out of shape. Like, is it worth $6? I mean, you decide. Is 26 monsters for $6? That's not a bad rate, really. If you look at how much you generally pay for like a book of monsters or whatever, that's about right. What's interesting is they used the Monsters Compendium Volume 1, 2, and 3 were free. So, four, they're charging for. Why? Like, why? And there's a good answer for that. And the answer is, I feel like my, my, my answer cynical, a little bit cynical is they're testing it out. Hey, can we sell $6 products? Can we put out products in d Beyond directly on d Beyond and sell it for six bucks? Right. And, you know, sure they can. My first, my first like jerk reaction was, oh man, I feel so bad for Wizards of the Coast if they're strapped so hard for cash that they need to charge you six bucks now right but obviously it's not that and that's not what they're tearing their their shareholders right their shareholders like no right no everything's great everything's going fine everything's going fine why are you charging for something you used to give away for free so before they used to drop it into the the monsters Compendiums, and a difference with this one is it has many more monsters than the other ones did the other ones had only a handful of monsters and this one's got a, a bigger set so you can say like it's a bigger product bigger set it's worth actually charging money for if you're one of the people who says like look good products are worth charging for that seems reasonable okay this fits that. It makes sense. But I really think that it's this is their attempt at trying out a different model. Hey, can we sell a product on D Beyond direct? We don't have to make a PDF. We don't have to make a separate product. We don't have to worry about layout. We don't have to worry about lots of stuff. We just put it into the regular DND Beyond tool like we're doing it directly for DND Beyond and sell it and and see if we can do it that way. So a little microtransaction y, if you will, you know, but that's the, their attempt. So is is that is that bad? I mean, no. I don't think so. It doesn't hurt anybody. You don't have to buy it. These are not core creatures that you absolutely have to have. It's not like there aren't a million other creatures. You could also buy a book that lets you build as many monsters as you want. This one, it's, I mean, infinite is really extreme, but you can, I guarantee you the price per monster for the monsters you can build using Forge of Foes is far cheaper than the price per monster from most any other source. So there are other ways you can go if you're looking to have lots of, lots of new monsters. So there's not really required. It's kind of a neat theme. I had patrons who bought it and read it and loved it and said, this is great. I love these monsters and I definitely want to use them. If you're already baked into D&D Beyond anyway, then having more monsters in D&D Beyond seems like a certain certain way way to go. And $6 is not breaking the bank, right? It's not super expensive. So I don't see this, again, if we think about, it, well, does this hurt the TTRPG industry? No, it's just more monsters that they're selling in D&D Beyond. Does it hurt the 5e industry? Not really. Like You can still put out anything you want. You can still buy many, many sources of products elsewhere. There's also, like God, the amount of monsters you can get for free is huge. So if you're just looking for more monster stat blocks, you can get all of that. But if you want a lot of like more information, art and details and stuff, then there's many, many, many monsters books by many third-party publishers that you can pick up in many different formats and many different VTTs if you want them. So that doesn't really hurt there either. Does it hurt D&D? Not really, but like it's an interesting way that like we can see what direction they're starting to think about D&D beyond. I really think that D&D Beyond, and I know this, like I'm the last one to come to this conclusion, right? Like lots of people have already said this, but D&D Beyond feels like the hub of fifth edition to me. It feels like the hub of D&D. I bet you the, I'm going to make it a speculation. I don't think it's that outrageous that the, the executives of Wizards of the Coast and the executives in charge of D&D are far more interested in what D&D Beyond can do than they are about what paper books can do. I think they care far more about D&D Beyond than they do about paper books. And if you think about it, it was $130 million acquisition. So of course they did. They didn't spend $130 million on new printing facilities, right? They put a lot of their money into D&D Beyond. So that seems right. But it's interesting that now a couple of times we've seen them sell a paper book And then make errata for that book almost immediately, that were available on D&D Beyond immediately, but your paper book is now immediately out of date. They did that for Spelljammer when they fixed the Hay-to-Z stuff. And not only was the Hay-to-Z stuff fixed because of the controversial issues with the artwork and stuff like that, but they actually fixed the mechanics of the Hay-to-Z and then errated that so that it's up on D&D Beyond, but not anywhere else. The, in Big Bees, there was a whole situation of AI-generated art. They said, we're no longer gonna have any AI-generated art inside Wizards books, and we recommissioned and put out new art, and they put out that new art on D&D Beyond. Now, they said it will make future printings of the book. It'll be in those future printings of the book as well. That's great, but I just bought the book, <laughs> and now there's new art that's coming out in a new version of the book. I mean, I guess, like, is, the alternative as well as printed and it's done. Like, they can't retroactively go fix my book they could spend a little bit more time testing their books before they put them out, maybe. But I guess that, that's something that they're going to do, particularly I said they were going to do after the, uh, after the Spelljammer issue. So, but the idea of putting direct products, like when will we see subclasses that are only available on d Beyond? When will we see, are there, are, what are the features that they could put on d Beyond that means you really can't use physical books anymore? And that would be an example is like, what if they put out an equivalent to Tasha's but it's only on D&D Beyond. And maybe it's like a subset of new spells or a subset of new subclasses or stuff like that that is only on D&D Beyond. What would that do? Would that bring more people to D&D Beyond? I don't know. Now, the other thing, and I was, this is a little doomsday, a little doomsday-ish, is like, one of the things we talked about with D&D is that we we all, many of us that are in publishing for it, and I think people that are looking at the hobby overall, recognize that D&D is the gateway drug to all of the rest of t- tabletop role-playing games. That generally speaking, people don't come into a TTRPG without starting with D&D. It does happen. I've got a friend who started with Pathfinder before he started with anything else. But most of the time when they're coming to an RPG, they're coming to it for DD. And that rising tide raised all the boats. The more popular DD was, the more popular all TTRPGs were because it meant that the people kind of branched out and did stuff. But if the focus of D becomes DD Beyond, and DD Beyond only really has stuff for Wizards of the Coast, and the more you invest in DD Beyond, the less you're likely to want to break away from it, to use other systems, other platforms, other, other, other games, is that gonna suck in some of that water and so now the rising tide isn't raising all the boats right that the rising it's all it's a it's a i don't know what a dam it's a dock a dam and the water's only raising for that one section of the dam and the rest of the water is staying level and where all our boats are sunk on them more i'm going i'm overusing that metaphor i don't know and that's you know who knows right the answer is we can look at the things we can see in front of us today and we can talk about that without speculating so much about what's going to happen in the future. I don't know what the 3D VTT is going to be like. I'm not even sure what's going to happen to 5th edition when the new core books come out. You know, we're seeing something they did today. They put out a new product today. That's interesting. They put out a new maps feature that's a 2D map. That's interesting. These are things that we're watching. We don't know what the response will be. We don't know what the reaction will be. I will say that... After the acquisition of D&D Beyond, we have seen all of these other RPGs that have gotten very popular. The idea that Knave and Dolman, Dolman Wood and Shadow Dark, three D- games that are built upon the original ideas of D&D, all had more than 10,000 backers and and, and had more than a million dollars in, in money come in. Plus, we're seeing lots of other fifth edition products that are still making lots of money. Cobalt Press is pushing out Tales of the Valiant. We're going to see that. We're going to see that on a bunch of different VTTs. There's a lot of growth that's happening overall. So the hobby feels really strong to me. I, I you know I feel really good about it. I always think that if we want to think about DD you know locking the doors on stuff DD beyond is the place where we're looking at it which is why like when the ogl fiasco happened earlier this year i was like they didn't need to worry about that because they already have the monopoly they want which is D beyond <laughs> right so it never made sense to me so i think it's interesting to see but it, it, take a look if these are the kinds of creatures that you think are interesting for you there's no problem in spending the six bucks and picking up a big handful of creatures if you're already using DD beyond seems seems really good but i'm always looking at it now and i know some people People are like, oh my God, Mike, we just stopped talking about the industry and the community and all that stuff. I wouldn't be talking about if I didn't think it was important to DMs because I want DMs. I want myself and I want other DMs to have the widest range of access to the best quality of material we can get without depending upon uh, the whims of any executives in any part of the industry to run awesome games for the rest of our lives. And really, we have that. We have that already. We have these books. I've got a shelf with probably a thousand pounds of books on it of different RPGs, including many versions of D&D that I could play forever. So we're in a really good state. Patrons of Sly Flourish get access to a whole bunch of different exclusive things, including a handful of exclusive adventures that you can drop right into your game. They're designed to be really easy to kind of pick up, digest, and run. And one of these is called Myers End. Myers End, again, just one one of a handful of of different adventures that you can get for becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Myers End is a fourth-level adventure designed uh, around sort of an old fairy barrow that you would find off in the woods somewhere. So it's designed to be kind of the thing you sort of drop in lots of different wild sorts of locations. And the whole idea behind it is that there was a fairy prince named Blackhorn who had kind of opened up a rift to another world and demons and devils came out and the characters can come here and try to solve you know, un- uncover the secrets of the Black Blackthorn's gate and also close the gate itself. Lots of different sort of fairy creatures and sort of otherworldly creatures that you can face here at fourth level. Very straightforward adventure, only 4 pages long, designed to be very easy to pick up. And read. It uses a Dyson Logos commercially available map for the map, and the zip file includes a VTT compatible version of that map that you can drop into your VTT of choice and use for for your own games. So this is just like one example of many of the different things that you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish, but there's probably about six or so adventures like this. Some of them are bigger, some of them are are, are about this size, kind of short and sweet, designed to be kind of fun one-shot adventures that you can drop into your game just about anywhere. So if you like this kind of adventure, and you want to help support me on on all the work that I do. Becoming a patron of Sly Flourish gets you access to stuff this plus a whole lot more. I've been thinking about the ideas of adventure structures ever since I was reading Adventure Crucible, building stronger scenarios for any RPG by Robin Laws, which is a really fun short book about the different kinds of adventure structures that he outlines, how they work, how they break apart. And it got me thinking a lot about like, what are the kind of common adventure structures that I find, particularly for fantasy role playing games like D&D? And I think that there's a handful. It's not an inclusive list. There are more adventure types than just this. But I think there's some common structures, some common adventure formats that we find. And I have some of these sort of filled out adventure formats in the Lazy DM's companion like the Seven Samurai adventure or Jaws or some of these other ones where you have like a particular scenario style but I think you can break them down even further into even more basic adventure structures. And so I thought we'd talk about kind of four of these adventure structures today and then maybe we'll kind of dig into some other ones in, in a future show. So, the main adventure model that I think is very common is the dun- right, the dun- in the dungeon crawl the characters have some reason that they're going into a dungeon a dungeon could really be sort of any structure it's probably not an inhabited castle full of guards and stuff that that falls under more of like a height i would argue falls more under a heist scenario but a dungeon could be like an an abandoned shipwreck it could be an old tomb it could be a bunch of caverns in a cave it could be a, a bunch of different kind of scenarios that all involve the characters moving from chamber to chamber discovering things as they go either avoiding encounters or getting engaged in encounters and ideally theoretically have some kind of goal i don't i don't think you can really run a dungeon crawl without some kind of goal even if the goal is collect treasure but i think it's it's for me it is hard to run a dungeon crawl when you don't when you don't have some kind of motivation for the characters to go there and do something. Go collect the old idol, or stop the portal that needs to be shut down, or kill the old barrow king who's sitting inside of his old barrow, sending undead into the village. There's some reason for you to go on a dungeon crawl. And there's a structure to dungeon crawls. One of the reasons why I like dungeon crawls so much is there's a core structure for how they work, that you have sort of the order in which the characters are going. Like, what's the character marching? order you have lighting conditions what are the situations with light you have the the contents what are the things that are in these chambers what will they discover what what was the history of the dungeon what was it used for and what are they going to uncover a little side note since Sunjammer brings it up and a a good name lighting conditions i'll give you a fifth edition hint about lighting conditions that has worked for me i think a hundred percent of the time which is what kind of lighting are you guys bringing into the dungeon we don't need lighting we have dark vision okay keep in mind that because you're using dark vision and it's completely dark you actually are seeing in low light which means you're minus five on passive perception checks and have disadvantage on perception okay never mind we're going to light up a light do we want a torch or we're going to use a light cantrip that conversation happens almost every time i run it and it almost ends up the same way which is they either use a light cantrip or they use a torchlight. but what it means is they're visible when they're walking around the dungeon somebody would have to go break out of the group i have I have a whole article where I talk about lighting and I talk about darkness and how that all works. But the reality is the way that lighting works in Five E, dark vision isn't as good as you think it is, and it isn't as good as the characters think it is. But it seems to come up even with the same players comes up every time where I say, don't forget if you are using dark vision in total darkness, you're minus five on perception checks and have disadvantage on perception rolls. And they go, oh, never, no one wants that. So what's the history of the dungeon? Where did it come from? What's the history? And that kind of dictates the sorts of things that they're going to find. What's inside the chambers, right? What fantastic features do they find? What are the encounters? This also isn't an exhaustive list. There's other sort of procedural things that you could do when running a dungeon crawl. There's lots of different ways to kind of go about running that dungeon crawl, how they explore things, how to make good maps. Again, I would, I would you have a map, like one big thing for a dungeon crawl, probably before everything else, is you have a map. I, of course, love Dyson Logos Maps. I use Dyson Logos Maps almost exclusively these days. There's more than a thousand different maps. He's an excellent designer. You can download them. They work on VTTs. You can print them out. You can do all kinds of things. They're, They're really, really good looking maps. So I just use Dyson Maps all the time. I really love Dyson Maps. Again, you can find Dyson Maps, Dyson Logo Maps, in the show notes. He's my fave. So that's an example of like a structure that you have for running a dungeon crawl. The characters pick their marching order. They have a map that they're exploring. Of course, another feature, which you kind of have common is the secrets and clues. What secrets can the characters uncover while exploring the dungeon? Right. And this is a big part of secrets and clues. Secrets and clues are like one line, little descriptions of things that are relevant to the characters, things that they could learn either about its history or the villains or what's going on here or things that'll tie to their goal, things they might learn about themselves, whatever. They're short, they're like fortune cookie sized and you don't, you don't decide where they're gonna find them. You just write that list out and then when they're exploring the dungeon, they might learn some of these things. You get to decide how to drop them in there. Overland travel is very similar and there's a couple of different ways to do overland travel. You could just abstract it and just say, for the next six days, you travel between Waterdeep and Baldur's Gate and it's an uneventful journey, right? You can, you, so you can abstract it and it becomes really short right? You can break it down into, like, a scene. You know, it takes you three days of travel. After three days, you run into this, an encounter, right? But then you could really break down travel into something much more minute you could have point point crawls point crawl i've talked about point crawls i learned about point crawls from justin alexander on the alexandrian but you can find a link to about the how point crawls work the idea with point crawls is you're abstracting distance you don't worry too much about every six miles that you're traveling like on a hex crawl or something like that or every 24 miles on a big hex you're worried about just going from point a to point b and what are the interesting features that happen along the way and then building a point crawl map in the same way you would build like a dungeon map that you have different nodes of locations you have secrets like secret paths that lead off to different areas for discovery, things like that. So point crawl is a way to kind of mix an abstract map or abstract distances with a map with a lot of different locations interwoven locations lots of interesting choices the characters want to take do you want to take the treacherous road along the mountains to the left or do you want to go down the main road where you could get assaulted by bandits or through the swamps where you have to deal with trolls and stuff like that so you have different options different paths but if you go to the troll one you might find the, the meyer castle right travel in the and if you go down into the swamps there's rumors that there's a hidden castle out there that's full of great treasure oh and now there's a reason to go there So it's point crawl. Hex crawl is more specific. You have different hexes the hexes have a certain amount of distance. You have so many days of travel. You have difficulty going from one hex to another. What is, what's the terrain style? What kind of features they can find? And in a similar way, you can have you can have roles. So in the same way that you kind of decide what the marching order is for a dungeon crawl, you could have different roles. Like who's going to be your scout to make sure you don't run into a nest full of bad guys? Who's going to be your pathfinder? Who's going to make sure that you stay on the path and you don't get lost? Who's going to manage your provisions by being a quartermaster? Somebody that makes sure that the that you're you, she changing your socks regularly and that you have your mosquito repellent right all these different kinds of roles and then you can have people roll for skill checks on the role so there's a structure to that that you can use a structure to overland travel and it makes overland travel work well as sort of a system that you can run i was just talking about uncharted journeys uncharted journeys is an excellent book that covers the idea of exploration and overland travel as a core component of the game in the same way that dungeon that dungeon crawls now the next adventure model that I really dig is I, I'm, I'm calling it a heist and then the same way that a dungeon crawl can actually cover a wide range of different kinds of things and the same way that overland travel can cover a wide range of different formats everything from it takes you six days to make the journey from Baldur's Gate to Waterdeep but it's an uneventful journey and you arrive at the gates of Waterdeep right I just did six days of travel in, in one sentence in the same way that that we have lots of different ways to kind of treat these main big adventure models heist i'm using as a general term and to me i'm using a heist in the same way that you'd say like building a situation that instead of a dungeon crawl where you're crawling from room to room and sort of discovering things as you go that a heist has a general location inhabitants to that location a central goal that the characters are trying to accomplish complications that might occur as they as they deal with that situation so I call it a heist because that, that model fits heist, which is like, you want to go steal the secret plans that are on the desk of the hobgoblin Lord that are sitting in his chamber. Right. And you have this big hobgoblin fort full of his mercenaries, red hand hobgoblins in this, in this big fort. And there's groups that are going out and doing things like they're going out and and surveying the area. There's other groups that are asleep or, or having meals or just general recreation. And then there's some groups that are on guard and they rotate, right? That those three groups sort of rotate. And so you're like, well, do we want to switch between the changing of the guards? Then you can say things like there's multiple ways in. You could go in through the front gate trying to pretend to be a mercenary company or something like that. You can try to sneak in some other way, do second story work to get over the palisade in the back where it's weaker. Or it turns out there's secret crypts underneath that even the hobgoblins don't know about. You could sneak in through the crypts underneath and try to break your way out. Most of the time people pick the crypts, but that's fine. So there's different ways of approaching the, the, the area, dealing with the situation. You're, you're looking at the overall thing. And the reason that it's different than a dungeon crawl is that the whole place is very dynamic, that the creatures are moving around the location. This happens in dungeon crawls, too, where you could say, like, people are moving. But where a dungeon crawl becomes more of a heist is when most of the people that are there are moving around and the situation is variable and can change. And the approach taken by the characters can change from trying to negotiate their way in. They could get captured and have to escape. They could try to break in from the top. They could try to sneak in from the bottom. There's lots of different ways that they can approach a heist. So the heist mechanics really, the the, the heist system is first saying, what does our location look like? And generally speaking, you hand the Details of that location to the players. So one big difference between a dungeon crawl and a heist is usually the players know what it looks like. They know what the rooms are like. They, they They can do their reconnoitering and see all of the different places. They know where the guard towers are. Maybe they get information from a cook who knows the place so they understand what's in there and they can figure out they, they usually get a copy of the plans. And you want to think of it like Ocean's Eleven, where, you, hey, here's the plan. Here's what it looks like. Here's all the secret things. We know the direction that people are going. We know where the thing is. We think it's either, maybe it's in one or two different rooms, but generally we know where the, the object or, of our desire, and maybe it's rescuing somebody. Maybe it's assassination. Maybe it's stealing something. Maybe it's putting something back. Maybe it's opening a gate. Maybe it's closing a gate. There's lots of different things that the the goal of the heist could be. I call it a heist, and people are going to be like, a heist is you steal Stealing something. I, you know, you work with me, right? Uh, To me, the definition of heist in my vernacular here is really that situation where you have a, a fixed goal, a fixed location, inhabitants in that location, and then complications that occur. The complications are important because if the characters know too much about the location, and they know too much about the people that are there, they can just go in and do it and it's too easy. But the idea that like things change, it turns out the thing's on the move. It turns out there's another group coming in. It turns out someone else is trying to steal it. It, You know, you can have all of these different sort of differences. You know, it turns out the object you're trying to get is a shrieker mushroom that just screams the whole time you're carrying it. All that sort of stuff. Now, there's some overlap here. I talked about the idea of secret crypts that exist underneath, underneath the area. And that is then more like a dungeon crawl. Maybe we want to sneak in. We know we'll show up in that well in the middle of the castle, but we don't know what the crypts are going to look like. Well, now it becomes more like a dungeon crawl that leads into a, a heist. So that can work too. You can sort of mix these two things up, right? You can, you can sort of mash them up together. But that's really the, the key to heists is you have location, you have inhabitants, you have a goal, any of complications. And I really love running heists because I love to see what the players come up with. I love the ideas. And it, I, like I had a heist that was break up a marriage, break up a wedding. Like there's going to be a wedding between ghouls and vampires. It's taking place in this place. Tons and tons of people there. What are you going to do? And what they came up with was brilliant. It was this awesome scene. And it was so chaotic and so much fun. I had no idea how it was going to go. And the players are planning things out. It was great. Just lovely. Loved it. Then we have this sort of other model that I call connector adventures. And a connector adventure is sort of the adventures that connect up the bigger parts of a campaign. And these would be things like if you are going back to town to talk to your quest NPC again, or you're gonna have to go negotiate with the king. They're often a series of scenes that are connected together. So the connectors are sort of bringing you from one part of the campaign to another part of the campaign. That's why I call them a connector. And the idea is that, generally speaking, what you have is a series of different scenes. And those scenes could be, some of the scenes could be things like overland travel. A lot of time it's role-playing. A lot of time it's like you're you're going from one group to another, having a role-play scene. Or you're doing a little bit of travel, but maybe it's like through a town. But you're sort of navigating the structure of the story which usually takes place in scenes. Now, the really important part of this is that in every scene that you run in a connector, there should be a different path and a a, a choice, there should be a choice and a different path that you take. So you should be able to, the characters, when they're in the middle of a scene, should know that the scene can go one of two ways. So an example is, let's say that the connector is, the characters have to talk to the Darrow. This is a spoiler for my Empire of the Ghouls game. The, the characters have to talk to a Darrow High Priestess, who recognizes that because the characters no longer have a soul, they can actually just kind of fall into themselves and end up inside the Dustlands in the dry lands and when they go to the dry lands if they if they imagine the palace of the last king who's a ghoul the last ghoul king if they imagine his palace they'll show up close to the palace so they do that and then the choice was well maybe she gives that information to them freely maybe they have to take it from her maybe they like the darrow are are probably not against killing these characters and taking their stuff or using them as thralls or something like that so if the conversation goes poorly it could end up violent but if it goes well then they'll learn what they want to learn but there's a situation there and the and they How that goes with both the approach that the players take and the motivation of the Darrow Priestess, for example, could have a different situation. Then another connector along the way could be that they're traveling from their starting location to the palace of the last king. And along the way, they could get attacked by... by by dry land scavengers. these really like evil looking vrock kind of things that fly in and attack them. Now, maybe they could try to find a way to sneak away from them. Maybe they could run from them. Maybe they could just fight them and kill them. But they have multiple choices about how they want to approach it when they see those scavengers. Then they get to the last king and they meet with him and they're talking to him. And again, he's another one that's like why should I give you this information that you want so much? What is in it for me? And the characters can try to convince them, they could he could give them another quest that they have to go on. There could be multiple paths that they can take. So in each even though we have these connector scenes that are moving the story forward in our campaign, the really important point is that you're not just having a scene that can only go one way. There's choices that can be made in each of these scenes that affect the outcome of their interaction with the NPCs or the direction that they go. And that way, it's almost a little bit like a point crawl where different paths exist. They're all sort of headed one way, but there's different paths to get there and those different paths are the choices that the players get to make or the things that happen based on the situation if they're rolling checks and they roll what if they roll a 1 on the charisma check with the darrow priestess what does that mean what if they roll a 20 what does that mean there should always be forking paths in these main nodes of a connector adventure but really the the goal of the connector adventure is to move th- forward through the path of a campaign to get from one place to another but campaigns can be built up of all of these things they can be built up of dungeon crawls they can be built up of heists they can be built up of overland travel scenes and then they can be connected together with connectors and those are the four structures that i am most familiar with and most comfortable with there are other adventure models too the ones that robin laws talks about in his in his book the adventure crucible book uh those make sense too mysteries are one that comes up all the time what about it what about a mystery? And it's really a topic for another, another, another part of the show, another show, probably. But mysteries don't play out like you want them to play out a lot of times. The mystery structure I find inherently difficult to run. And I think there are other ways to go about handling a mystery. And the, to me, the big thing for a mystery is what happens if they find out the answer too early? Right? How you you don't want to just bait them along. The idea that the answer is already known is not great. Instead of a mystery, try running a heist. That use the heist as the mystery. The mystery is the that heist is finding the thing that you need to bring somebody to justice or stop the murders or whatever, but it's still kind of like a heist that there's still them gathering evidence, figuring things out, going from different places. They understand the situation. And then what's the path that they get there. Secrets and clues are your clues that lead you to the mystery. But the big thing is what if they figure out who it is, how does it become something else? How does it switch into one of these other styles of adventures when they already understand what the mystery is? Because the real trick to a mystery is, if you know the answer to the mystery, the mystery's broken. And a lot of times players are smarter than we are because there's six of them or five of them and only one of us. So what's that track that you can use to, to try to break the mystery? So I could talk more about mysteries. I have articles about mysteries. I'll link to those in the show notes. But to me, when I'm thinking about the structures of adventures, these four structures are the ones that I really... I really grab onto. I think they, they have a they have a fit style. The connector one is a little bit fuzzier, but the other three, the dungeon crawl, overland travel, and heist, I think have like good solid systems that have been in place for fifty years now and they link together really well in how we run our adventure. So I thought that was something worth worth talking about. Every month on the Sly Flares Patreon, we put up a Patreon Q&A thread. It's available to patrons. Any patron can ask, as, ask a question for the month. It's an RPG related question. I answer every one of the questions every Friday, every Friday morning, right there. Some of those questions I bring here to the show where we talk about them, some of them become the catalyst for other articles or other videos. Tubi says, "All DM two groups playing Castle Ravenloft Halloween session with one player joining both sessions. I've read, and men, uh, read your and many other ideas on how to make it work, but I'm still looking for a nice idea to somehow make it more interesting for that specific player. She already had the idea of using the same character with a reborn lineage to explain her meta knowledge, but as a DM, I feel that there's lots of potential for narrative as well as making things surprising for her again, on top of all of the fortune randomness. I'm curious about your ideas on involving players with foreknowledge in general and for Ravenloft. Yeah, so Castle Ravenloft is a really good adventure to run for Halloween. I run it every Halloween, almost every Halloween. Every so often I take a break and run something else. But one of the reasons why is because the different locations of the items can move around. It means the players, even if they've played before, have to go to different places. Now, eventually the players are going to remember enough of the castle that they'll know how quickly to go from one place to the other. One good idea about how to take somebody who's got foreknowledge of what's going on and bring them in is to... This is sort of a thing that I... I keep in mind when I'm running Ravenloft, which is the idea that it is a cyclic world that if we think about it for the domain of dread idea, it's like, it, what happened, what's happening in the future. It has already happened before the whole idea of Strahd going after Irina is based back on the whole thing with her, you know, Strahd and, and back when he was human and, and Tet- Tetra, Teddy, Tetri- Tetriana, I forget what her name is, you know, it's all happened before, it's all gonna happen again. Now maybe it happens again, but it doesn't happen with Strahd. So I've run it where Irina was the vampire lord, and Strahd was actually the one that was giving out the fortunes in the beginning. and somebody else was the one that needed to be rescued. It's like her brother was the one who needed to be rescued. So you can change the inhabitants. And actually in my castle Ravenloft guide on Sly Flourish, I, I give a list of like, here are all different people that could be involved as these are the people who are the main villain. These are the people who need to be rescued or, or need to be saved. And these are the ones that are giving out the fortunes in the beginning. And you change those and the whole theme of the game changes. Like what if Madame Eva is the vampire queen, right? What if, Irene is the one that's making the fortune. She's now an old woman. She was like, look, I had this vampire. I I went through all this before and now it's your turn. Right. You can change things uh, to to get it to run really, really well. And I think that can be uh, a lot of fun. And then, of course, you can kind of change things up in the room. Look at different rooms, change up different groups, look at like NPCs that are there. You can move those. That takes more work and more prep time, but that's certainly a way to go as well. But I think that it's very easy, like a a super easy way, if you have a player who already knows about the story, is to make them Irina so that Irina is going with the character. She knows what's going on. She knows that she's the one that's been attacked by Strahd. She knows that she's been in the castle before. She has this foreknowledge about what's going on, and the players can kind of build off of that. But then the other way is to sort of shake things up so that that so that that player doesn't necessarily know what's going on but for a player who has a history and the reborn lineage could remember this has happened before other adventures have gone in here before and i have a memory maybe i was one of those adventures in a previous life and this my soul moved from one to another there's ways to account for that for that and that's what i think makes running ravenloft so much fun Akiko Potato says, in October, I will have about three weeks with literally no responsibilities. I have some ideas outside of general relaxation, but if you were presented with the same situation, what activities would you fill your time with to improve as a GM? This question, I can't imagine having three weeks with no responsibilities. Like, I was talking about it with my wife. We both kind of work on our, on the Sly Flourish Empire together now. And I was like, How would we even do that? Like, how could we, we have so many different responsibilities. How would we even take three weeks away? Like what, what would, so we started thinking about from like a retirement perspective, what does retirement from this look like? And how would we be able to step away from it? What could we do? And we came up with some stuff about doing, but I can't even imagine having three weeks with literally no responsibilities. But the big question is like, what would I do with it? Is uh, particularly like as getting and improving at GM is read. I would read. I would read a lot. So there are many, many, many really good books. I, if you wanted to improve as a GM, I think the Game Master guides that Kobold Press puts out, Kobold, the Kobold guides that Kobold Press puts out, those are really good. They have lots of essays from lots of people that have thought a about TTRPGs in many different areas. And if you really wanted to dig in, I would dig into those. You can pick them up. You can kind of pick the cha- the chapters, that really grab you and kind of run with those chapters but then you can read the rest of them and see what you can learn but so those those sources would be really good of course i would recommend my own books but also like other dm guides it would be pretty interesting to pick up rpgs from systems that you don't typically run things like blades in the dark things like band of blades things like thirsty sword lesbians things like you know all different kinds of rpgs that kind of get your attention dungeon world and other you know pick up a bunch of different ones you know pick and and read how those games run and ideas that those games bring to the table that your core rpg that you run might not you know what are what are some RPG what are ideas from other RPGs you go wow that would work really well this one has this system in here that I think would work really well for this you know that idea of like hey the the I know it's not a no guy the flashback mechanic from Blades in the Dark you read about that and you're like oh that's cool I'm not going to tell you what it is too because you should go read about it but trust me the flashback mechanic works really well in lots of RPGs and you could just grab it and re- bring it right over so read books and read rpg books there's so many of them and you know i think gm guides are really good the other one is like maybe read monster books right go find monster books and read the lore of the monsters we skip the lore a lot of times but the lore is what really fills out worlds with interesting bits about monsters and i think it's highly undervalued i think that the text that that writers write about the monsters beyond the stat block, but just how these monsters fit into the world and how they connect together, is really interesting. So pick a monster book out and read through the monster books and fill your head with all of the lore of all of those different monsters from your favorite monster books. That can be really valuable. And of course, there's lots and you could read. Lots of fiction too. You could read old fairy tales. You can read fiction of you know go through the appendix N and and read books about that. About what are what are books that kind of drove the drove how DD operates that that can work now some of those books are pretty dated i don't think a lot of them hold up these days but you can learn a lot from them so the answer is read i think i don't think that there's a lot you can do to prep for three weeks that would make your game that much more valuable than what you could do in an hour or two i think that when we spend more than a couple of hours i did this as an experiment one time I had a whole day. I, I marked off an entire day. And I said, that day, all I'm gonna do is prep my game. My whole day is built around prep. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just do prep. And I made maps and I went and printed maps at Kinko. It was in FedEx and I, you know, filled out stuff. I got all my minis together for all these things. I kind of built out, it was when I was running uh, Ghost of Saltmarsh and I got all this stuff together. I ended up like prepping like half the campaign. And guess what? I threw almost all of it out. It turned out the campaign went in directions I didn't expect and I ended up I don't think I ever used those maps. I think I had all these maps that I printed. Luckily they weren't expensive, but I didn't need them cuz they didn't end up really going there. I think I used one or two of them. So, we think that if we the the amount of time that we spend on prep has a diminishing return. And eventually we're gonna hit such a low point of diminishing return that spending an extra two, three, four, five, 10, 12, 15, 20 hours of time on our prep is not gonna necessarily make our game that much better. That once we kind of got through like a couple of hours of prep for a session, You know, I mean, a campaign like I don't it's not really worth prepping further out in a campaign because you don't know if it's going to go there. You don't want to you want the freedom to change. And even worse than prepping and having to throw it away is forcing the campaign to go down a certain route because you prep that way. So that's what I would not recommend. I wouldn't recommend spending time on that. But I think just digging into what DMing is, reading a lot, try to avoid getting wired into social media stuff and just reading actual books that were written years ago, the ones that still hold up, I think you can learn a whole lot from that. So that's, that's what I would, that's what I would spend my time on. Friends, I want to thank you all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in RPGs. If you enjoyed this show and you want more stuff like this, the best way to get it is through the Sly Flourish newsletter. You get a weekly, it's absolutely free to sign up, and every week you get a free article sent directly to your inbox that is an article about TTRPG stuff, but also has links to all of the other work that I do. You also get a free adventure generator PDF for signing up. You can also support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of cool things like Myers End and everything else that I've been talking about. Most of all patrons help support me on this show so thank you patrons and you can pick up any of my books at the Sly flourish bookstore all the links for those are in the show notes thank you all so much have a great day and get out there and play an rpg